When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Chapter 2, Part 2 December 16th A whole fortnight has passed, and I have not once opened these pages. I have been long enough away from my journal to come back to it with a healthier and better mind, I hope, so far as Sir Percival is concerned. There is not much to record of the past two weeks. The dresses are almost all finished, and the new travelling trunks have been sent here from London, Poor dear Laura hardly leaves me for a moment all day, and last night, when neither of us could sleep, she came and crept into my bed to talk to me there. "'I shall lose you so soon, Mary Anne,' she said. "'I must make the most of you while I can.' "'They are to be married at Limeridge Church, and, thank heaven, not one of the neighbors is to be invited to the ceremony.' The only visitor will be our old friend Mr. Arnold, who is to come from Polesdean to give Laura away, her uncle being far too delicate to trust himself outside the door in such inclement weather as we now have. If I were not determined from this day forth to see nothing but the bright side of our prospects, the melancholy absence of any male relative of Laura's at the most important moment of her life would make me very gloomy and very distrustful of the future. But I have done with gloom and distrust. That is to say, I have done with writing about either the one or the other in this journal. Sir Percival is to arrive tomorrow. He offered, in case we wished to treat him on terms of rigid etiquette, to write and ask our clergyman to grant him the hospitality of the rectory during the short period of his sojourn at Limeridge before the marriage. Under the circumstances, neither Mr. Fairley nor I thought it all necessary for us to trouble ourselves about attending to trifling forms and ceremonies. In our wild moorland country, and in this great lonely house, we may well claim to be beyond the reach of the trivial conventionalities which hamper people in other places. I wrote to Sir Percival to thank him for his polite offer, and to beg that he would occupy his old rooms, just as usual, at Limeridge House. December 17th. He arrived today looking, as I thought, a little worn and anxious, but still talking and laughing like a man in the best possible spirits. He brought with him some really beautiful presents in jewelry, which Laura received with her best grace, and outwardly at least, with perfect self-possession, the only sign I can detect of the struggle it must cost her to preserve appearances at this trying time, expresses itself in a sudden unwillingness on her part ever to be left alone. Instead of retreating to her own room, as usual, she seems to dread going there. When I went upstairs today, after lunch, to put on my bonnet for a walk, she volunteered to join me, and again before dinner she threw the door open between our two rooms, "'so that we might talk to each other while we were dressing. "'Keep me always doing something,' she said. "'Keep me always in company with somebody. "'Don't let me think. 
"'That is all I ask now, Marianne. "'Don't let me think.' "'This sad change in her only increases "'her attractions for Sir Percival. "'He interprets it, I can see, to his own advantage. "'There is a feverish flush in her cheeks, "'a feverish brightness in her eyes, "'which he welcomes, "'as the return of her beauty "'and the recovery of her spirits. "'She talked today at dinner with a gaiety "'and carelessness so false, "'so shockingly out of her character, "'that I secretly longed to silence her "'and take her away.' Sir Percival's delight and surprise appeared to be beyond all expression. The anxiety, which I had noticed on his face when he arrived, totally disappeared from it, and he looked, even to my eyes, a good ten years younger than he really is. There can be no doubt, though some strange perversity prevents me from seeing it myself, there can be no doubt that Laura's future husband is a very handsome man, Regular features form a personal advantage to begin with, and he has them. Bright brown eyes, either in a man or woman, are a great attraction, and he has them. Even baldness, when it is only baldness over the forehead, as in his case, is rather becoming than not in a man, for it heightens the head and adds to the intelligence of the face. Grace and ease of movement, untiring animation of manner, "'ready, pliant, conversational powers, "'all these are unquestionable merits, "'and all these he certainly possesses. "'Surely Mr. Gilmore, ignorant as he is of Laura's secret, "'was not to blame for feeling surprised "'that she should repent of her marriage engagement. "'Anyone else in his place would have shared our good old friend's opinion. "'If I were asked at this moment to say plainly "'what defects I have discovered in Sir Percival,' I could only point out two. One, his incessant restlessness and excitability, which may be caused, naturally enough, by unusual energy of character. The other, his short, sharp, ill-tempered manner of speaking to the servants, which may be only a bad habit, after all. No, I cannot dispute it, and I will not dispute it. Sir Percival is a very handsome and a very agreeable man. There. I have written it down at last, and I'm glad it's over. December 18th. Feeling weary and depressed this morning, I left Laura with Mrs. Vesey and went out alone for one of my brisk midday walks, which I have discontinued too much of late. I took the dry, airy road over the moor that leads to Todd's Corner. After having been out half an hour, I was excessively surprised to see Sir Percival approaching me from the direction of the farm. He was walking rapidly, swinging his stick, his head erect as usual, and his shooting jacket flying open in the wind. When we met, he did not wait for me to ask any questions. He told me at once that he had been to the farm to inquire if Mr. and Mrs. Todd had received any tidings since his last visit to Limeridge of Anne Catherick. "'You found, of course, that they had heard nothing,' I said." "'Nothing whatever,' he replied. "'I begin to be seriously afraid that we have lost her. "'Do you happen to know,' he continued, "'looking me in the face very attentively, "'if the artist Mr. Hartwright is in a position "'to give us any further information?' "'He has neither heard of her nor seen her "'since he left Cumberland,' I answered. "'Very sad,' said Sir Percival, 
"'speaking like a man who is disappointed, "'and yet, oddly enough, "'looking at the same time like a man who is relieved. "'It is impossible to say what misfortunes "'may not have happened to the miserable creature. "'I am inexpressibly annoyed "'at the failure of all my efforts "'to restore her to the care and protection "'which she so urgently needs. "'This time he really looked annoyed. "'I said a few sympathizing words, "'and we then talked of other subjects "'on our way back to the house.' Surely my chance meeting with him on the moor has disclosed another favorable trait in his character. Surely it was singularly considerate and unselfish of him to think of Anne Catherick on the eve of his marriage and to go all the way to Todd's corner to make inquiries about her when he might have passed the time so much more agreeably in lore of society. Considering that he can only have acted from motives of pure charity, his conduct under the circumstances shows unusual good feeling, and deserves extraordinary praise. Well, I give him extraordinary praise, and there's an end of it. December 19th. More discoveries in the inexhaustible mine of Sir Percival's virtues. Today I approach the subject of my proposed sojourn under his wife's roof when he brings her back to England. I had hardly dropped my first hint in this direction, "'before he caught me warmly by the hand, "'and said I had made the very offer to him "'which he had been, on his side, "'most anxious to make to me. "'I was the companion of all others "'whom he most sincerely longed to secure for his wife, "'and he begged me to believe "'that I had conferred a lasting favor on him "'by making the proposal to live with Laura after her marriage "'exactly as I had always lived with her before it. When I had thanked him in her name and mine for his considerate kindness to both of us, we passed next to the subject of his wedding tour and began to talk of the English society in Rome to which Laura was to be introduced. He ran over the names of several friends whom he expected to meet abroad this winter. They were all English, as well as I can remember, with one exception. The exception was Count Fosco. The mention of the Count's name and the discovery that he and his wife are likely to meet the bride and bridegroom on the continent puts Laura's marriage for the first time in a distinctly favorable light. It is likely to be the means of healing a family feud. Hitherto, Madame Fosco has chosen to forget her obligations as Laura's aunt out of sheer spite against the late Mr. Fairley for his conduct in the affair of the legacy, now, however, she can persist in this course of conduct no longer. Sir Percival and Count Fosco are old and fast friends, and their wives will have no choice but to meet on civil terms. Madame Fosco, in her maiden days, was one of the most impertinent women I ever met with, capricious, exacting, and vain to the last degree of absurdity. If her husband has succeeded in bringing her to her senses... He deserves the gratitude of every member of the family, and he may have mine to begin with. I am becoming anxious to know the Count. He is the most intimate friend of Laura's husband, and in that capacity he excites my strongest interest. Neither Laura nor I have ever seen him. All I know of him is that his accidental presence years ago on the steps of the Trinita del Monte at Rome "'assisted Sir Percival's escape from robbery and assassination "'at the critical moment when he was wounded in the hand. 
and might, the next instant, have been wounded in the heart. I remember also that, at the time of the late Mr. Fairley's absurd objections to his sister's marriage, the Count wrote him a very temperate and sensible letter on the subject, which, I am ashamed to say, remained unanswered. This is all I know of Sir Percival's friend. I wonder if he will ever come to England. I wonder if I shall like him. My pen is running away into mere speculation. Let me return to sober matter-of-fact. It is certain that Sir Percival's reception of my venturesome proposal to live with his wife was more than kind. It was almost affectionate. I am sure Laura's husband will have no reason to complain of me if I can only go on as I have begun. I have already declared him to be handsome, agreeable, full of good feeling towards the unfortunate, and full of affectionate kindness towards me. Really, I hardly know myself again in my new character of Sir Percival's warmest friend. December 20th. I hate Sir Percival. I flatly deny his good looks. I consider him to be eminently ill-tempered and disagreeable, and totally wanting in kindness and good feeling. Last night, the cards for the married couple were sent home. Laura opened the packet and saw her future name in print for the first time. Sir Percival looked over her shoulder familiarly at the new card, which had already transformed Miss Fairley into Lady Glyde, smiled with the most odious self-complacency, and whispered something in her ear. I don't know what it was. Laura has refused to tell me. But I saw her face turn to such a deadly whiteness that I thought she would have fainted. He took no notice of the change. All my old feelings of hostility towards him revived on the instant, and all the hours that have passed since have done nothing to dissipate them. I am more unreasonable and more unjust than ever. In three words how glibly my pen writes them. In three words. I hate him. December 21st. Have the anxieties of this anxious time shaken me a little at last? I have been writing for the last few days in a tone of levity which, heaven knows, is far enough from my heart, and which it has rather shocked me to discover on looking back at the entries in my journal. Perhaps I may have caught the feverish excitement of Laura's spirits for the last week. If so, the fit has already passed away from me, and has left me in a very strange state of mind. A persistent idea has been forcing itself on my attention, ever since last night, that something will yet happen to prevent the marriage. What has produced this singular fancy? Is it the indirect result of my apprehensions for Laura's future? Or has it been unconsciously suggested to me by the increasing restlessness an irritability which I have certainly observed in Sir Percival's manner as the wedding day draws nearer and nearer. Impossible to say. I know that I have the idea, surely the wildest idea under the circumstances, that ever entered a woman's head. But try as I may, I cannot trace it back to its source. This last day has been all confusion and wretchedness. How can I write about it? and yet I must write. Anything is better than brooding over my own gloomy thoughts. Kind Mrs. Vesey, whom we have all too much overlooked and forgotten of late, innocently caused us a sad morning to begin with. 
she has been for months past, secretly making a warm Shetland shawl for her dear pupil, a most beautiful and surprising piece of work, to be done by a woman at her age and with her habits. The gift was presented this morning, and poor, warm-hearted Laura completely broke down when the shawl was put proudly on her shoulders by the loving old friend and guardian of her motherless childhood. I was hardly allowed time to quiet them both, or even to dry my own eyes, when I was sent for by Mr. Fairley to be favored with a long recital of his arrangements for the preservation of his own tranquility on the wedding day. Dear Laura was to receive his present, a shabby ring with her affectionate uncle's hair for an ornament, instead of a precious stone, and with a heartless French inscription inside about congenial sentiments and eternal friendship. Dear Laura was to receive this tender tribute from my hands immediately, so that she might have plenty of time to recover from the agitation produced by the gift before she appeared in Mr. Fairley's presence. Dear Laura was to pay him a little visit that evening, and to be kind enough not to make a scene. Dear Laura was to pay him another little visit in her wedding dress the next morning, and to be kind enough again not to make a scene. Dear Laura was to look in once more for the third time before going away, but without harrowing his feelings by saying when she was going away, and without tears, in the name of pity, in the name of everything, dear Marianne, that is most affectionate and most domestic, and most delightfully and charmingly self-composed, without tears. I was so exasperated by this miserable selfish trifling, at such a time, that I should certainly have shocked Mr. Fairley by some of the hardest and rudest truths he has ever heard in his life. If the arrival of Mr. Arnold from Polesdean had not called me away to new duties downstairs. The rest of the day is indescribable. I believe no one in the house really knew how it passed. The confusion of small events, all huddled together, one on the other, bewildered everybody. There were dresses sent home that had been forgotten. There were trunks to be packed and unpacked and packed again. There were presents from friends far and near, friends high and low. We were all needlessly hurried, all nervously expectant of the morrow. Sir Percival, especially, was too restless now to remain five minutes together in the same place. That short, sharp cough of his troubled him more than ever. He was in and out of doors all day long, and he seemed to grow so inquisitive on a sudden that he questioned the very strangers who came on small errands to the house. Add to all this the one perpetual thought in Laura's mind and mine that we were to part the next day, and the haunting dread, unexpressed by either of us, and yet ever present to both, that this deplorable marriage might prove to be the one fatal error of her life and the one hopeless sorrow of mine. For the first time, in all the years of our close and happy intercourse, we almost avoided looking each other in the face, and we refrained by common consent from speaking together in private through the whole evening. I can dwell on it no longer. Whatever future sorrows may be in store for me, I shall always look back on this 21st of December as the most comfortless and most miserable day of my life. I am writing these lines in the solitude of my own room, long after midnight, having just come back from a stolen look at Laura in her pretty little white bed, the bed she has occupied since the days of her girlhood. 
There she lay, unconscious that I was looking at her, quiet, more quiet than I dared to hope, but not sleeping. The glimmer of the nightlight showed me that her eyes were only partially closed. The traces of tears glistened both her eyelids. My little keepsake, only a brooch, lay on the table at her bedside, with her prayer book and the miniature portrait of her father, which she takes with her wherever she goes. I waited a moment, looking at her from behind her pillow, as she lay beneath me, with one arm and hand resting on the white coverlid, so still, so quietly breathing, that the frill of her nightdress never moved. I waited, looking at her, as I have seen her thousands of times, as I shall never see her again, and then stole back to my room. My own love, with all your wealth and all your beauty, how friendless you are. The one man who would give his heart's life to serve you is far away, tossing this stormy night on the awful sea. Who else is left to you? No father, no brother, no living creature but the helpless, useless woman who writes these sad lines and watches by you for the morning in sorrow that she cannot compose, in doubt that she cannot conquer. Oh, what a trust is to be placed in that man's hands tomorrow, if ever he forgets it, if ever he injures a hair of her head. The 22nd of December, 7 o'clock. A wild, unsettled morning. She has just risen, better and calmer, now that the time has come, than she was yesterday. 10 o'clock. She is dressed. We have kissed each other. We have promised each other not to lose courage. I am away for a moment in my own room. In the whirl and confusion of my thoughts, I can detect that strange fancy of some hindrance happening to stop the marriage still hanging about my mind. Is it hanging about his mind, too? I see him from the window, moving hither and thither, uneasily among the carriages at the door. How can I write such folly? The marriage is a certainty. In less than half an hour, we start for the church. Eleven o'clock. It is all over. They are married. Three o'clock. They are gone. I am blind with crying. I can write no more. The first epic of the story closes here. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.